Welcome to the Primary Source Podcast. My name is Tom Bober, a school librarian in the suburbs of St. Louis, Missouri. This podcast is here to explore the uses of primary sources in K-12 libraries and classrooms. We'll dig into resources and teaching strategies, talk to educators who are utilizing primary sources and supporters of educators who curate these incredible items and use them in their work. So this podcast episode should post up by Tuesday, May 25th. And when it does, we're going to call this the last episode of season one. I wanna take just a moment to recap the season before we get into some exciting content for this episode. I just wanna reflect back on what originally were my goals. And I don't know if I ever shared them in this podcast. I, they might be in episode one if I would go back and listen to it. but. My goal was just to have some conversation around primary sources, things that I was not always able to share in any other way that I already had access to, like the blog that I do for AASL or getting a chance to speak in front of educators, which does happen throughout the year several times. There were always these pieces that kind of got missed. And so I thought that maybe this podcast would be a way to share it out. And I think that it has been, and it has actually been turning into something else early on when we were able to start bringing authors on who write and research with the use of primary sources, when we've been able to have other educators on and we've been able to speak with them about their uses of primary sources. This has turned into something and is turning into something that is a little bit bigger than I originally expected to be. One area where I haven't been able to meet up to my expectations, but at the same time exceeded them, is the scheduling of all of these episodes. Originally, I had hoped to do just 10 episodes this year, one a month, and we certainly have done more than that, but the scheduling of it has been a little bit sporadic. So this is going to be something that I work on for season two and also lean into that aspect of reaching out and getting more people on the podcast and involved in sharing their stories around how they use primary sources. I'm excited about some potential that I've got, uh, some potential guests that I've got lined up or am beginning to line up for season two, some people that I've spoken to or reached out to, and some people that are on my list and that will be reached out to as we get closer to the beginning of that. So we're almost to Memorial Day in the United States, and we're going to take a break until Labor Day. We'll come back in early September with season two, more episodes, hopefully a little more regularly scheduled. And I wanna thank everyone who has listened over this first season, everyone especially who subscribed so that they were regularly coming back, even when the episodes maybe weren't every two weeks and also especially everyone who reached out and said that they were enjoying the podcast or shared the podcast and definitely the people who came on the podcast and shared a little bit of their expertise and their experiences around primary sources. I could not appreciate all of you enough. This is something that I sit and record usually late at night after the family has gone to bed and then frantically edit it uh, within a day or two or three to get it up and share it with you. And so it's incredible that from my table that I'm sitting here doing this at in my house late at night that I'm able to connect with people. I think that that is an awesome thing, at least as far as I'm concerned, and I'm really thankful for that. Let's jump in to the content for 
tonight's episode. This one came to me while I was driving uh, pretty recently, within the last week or week and a half, and was listening to NPR, specifically listening to a show called Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. And on the episode, they were talking uh, to and about archivist and filmmaker Rick Prelinger. And Rick is a archivist and professor at UC Santa Cruz. He's also a collector of footage, found footage, discarded footage, which may include things like home movies. It could include things like B-roll footage from old feature films that's never been seen before. It might be outtakes from industrial videos. It's all of this kind of discarded footage that's around. And he collects that and utilizes it in some really interesting ways. And as I was listening to this episode, I just started making all of these connections with either things that I have had an opportunity to do, things that I maybe got close to doing but want to push further into after listening to this uh, particular piece, all kinds of things that were just firing off at once. And I thought, what a great way to encapsulate this but put it into a podcast episode, especially when we've got the end of the school year coming up. I hope that I'm going to be taking a little bit of a mental break, but this will be a nice archived piece for me to come back and revisit my thinking when things pick back up in the fall. So one thing that Rick does in his work, and I'm going to go ahead and make sure that I link the NPR story so that you can give that a listen if you would like, but I'm also going to link to two other really important pieces. The first is some of the raw footage that Rick Prelinger has shared that is available online through the Internet Archive. And there are over 8,500 videos that he has up here of all different sorts and types. I could not even begin to start to describe what is listed here because it is just a little bit of everything across decades and decades, geography all over I believe only the United States, but it might be beyond that. I'm not really 100% sure with 8,500 plus videos. I certainly haven't had the opportunity to look at all of them, but there's plenty here. And I have to imagine that there are some things that would be connections to what is going on with my students across the grade levels. This is one of the things that I think is so important about really diving in, especially as a school librarian for me, around what is available when it comes to historical documents and historical items. I sometimes have people ask me, well, how do you know where to go when you're looking for something for a lesson idea or to collaborate with the teacher? And the easiest thing that I can say, and it's not necessarily that easy, is to really know what's out there. Now, if you've listened to any of these previous episodes, you know some of those places that I like to go regularly. You know about LOC.gov, you know about Chronicling America, you know about the American Archive of Public Broadcasting and the Smithsonian Learning Lab. There's all of these places that I love to go and I regularly do go, but there are also these little pockets like this one that I just discovered of Rick Prelinger's videos that he's made available. And I say little, but it's 8,500 videos that are here, 8,500 pieces of history that have been captured and digitized and made available 
for you and me and for our students. So having an idea of what's here or that it even exists, so it's someplace that I could go search, I think is an important piece, keeping up on where those places are for you and sharing those out with your other librarians, with your classroom teachers, whoever you are working with that might benefit from this, kind of spreading that love of resources that are available. I kind of went off on a little bit of a tangent there. Uh, but I, I just think that this is so important that this is here and, and that people know about it. So of course, this will be linked in the notes. So you can always come back and find it if it's something that you're looking for. Now, the other thing that he has is a pretty bare bones website and it's pralinger.com. And it redirects you to a, just essentially a list. And a lot of what this is, is a brief biography from Rick Pralinger and the ephemeral videos or ephemeral films that he has and listings of some of these that are available. Now, what he has done in this listing, as opposed to what's on Internet Archive, is he's taking these groupings of these videos and he's essentially put them all together. So he has, and he calls these Lost Landscapes, which I think is a really cool title, but he's got Lost Landscapes from San Francisco, Detroit, Los Angeles, New York, and what an Oakland I see here as well. What he's done here is long form pieces of video pieced together, made up of all of these short films, whatever type they may be, whether they're home footage or B-roll or whatever it is, all put together, but grouped together by geography, grouped together by place. And he shows these and I learned this from the NPR show, but he shows these to audiences, or at least he did when we could all gather uh, like that. So my assumption is he will be doing this again. But he, he shows these in front of audiences, and the audio to this is really the audience themselves. As they're calling out to him, he's in the front, and they're calling out questions or connections they had, reactions to what they're watching, memories that they have even, and he's there also responding, giving little pieces of information or clarification along the way where he can, because he's obviously has all this expertise with these pieces of film and where they came from and what they're showing. When I listened to a little piece of this, because they have a recorded piece in the NPR uh, footage, it really struck me immediately because what it felt like to me is when my students are analyzing a primary source, which could be a film, but could also be some other type of, of piece. It could be a written piece or a visual piece, a, a still frame of photography or uh, a piece of a, a newspaper, whatever it is. That idea of students, participants, let's call them collaboratively calling out and building on each other's ideas and filling in gaps where they could because uh, Prelinger is, is taking on that role of, of kind of dual participant at this time. This is what happens when students are 
actively engaged in an analysis of a primary source. So if you get a chance to listen to that, if you haven't done this with your students in a collaborative way, this gives you a little bit of a hint of what it can sound like because it goes in a lot of different directions as they're calling out their questions, as they're making connections to it, as they're reacting to what they're seeing. And they're doing those stages of a, of a very basic primary source analysis that we've, I've talked about in other episodes. They are making observations, they are reacting to those observations, and they're asking questions based off of those observations in addition to, with the reactions and the questions, their own background knowledge. So the observations and their own background knowledge go into those reactions and questions that are being asked. And this is what happens in these crowds too. It happens in a very organic way. And it's what can happen with students as well when they're analyzing a primary source. So that little nugget, that little piece that was shared in the NPR piece was, was one solid connection that I had. And it made me want to go back and incorporate more video into some of the work that we've done, which to be honest with you, this year has been a little bit minimal because we haven't been able to gather collaboratively in the same ways that we've been able to in the past. Have we been able to gather? Yeah, to some degree in a distanced way. Have we been either able to analyze primary sources? Certainly, but it feels different. And so this made me kind of long for some ways that we've done this in the past that we weren't quite ready to do this year. We'll see what next year looks like. I think it's we're starting to get some inkling of, of what that's going to look like. And, and it's going to be inching back towards being able to do more of that collaborative piece. Uh, but I think still some some mitigation efforts in there. So we'll see what that looks like. But I'm, I'm hopeful that we're going to be able to move into some of this and, and seeing and listening to this piece of footage from NPR for watching some of the Prelinger uh, films really got me excited about that. The other piece, the other connection that I had was this idea that he's pulling this, these lost elements. And it made me think of our local history museum, a conversation that I had several years ago with their archivist of film. And I don't even know if it's the same person there. I don't remember her name, to be honest with you. I'd have to go look up in some notes that I took at the time. But she shared that their library and research center was collecting this type of lost footage, specifically around home movies. And she actually shared some with me around our St. Louis Zoo, home movies that had been collected, memory serves from like the 50s and the 60s. And we were able to bring them in once and right now our curriculum is shifting a little bit, so I'm going to need to see next year where we're going to be able to bring them in again as far as what grade level is going to be able to interact with these, making sense with their, with their curricular needs that they have. But one thing that I love about looking at old film that is geographically bound to where you are, and this really holds true for still photographs also, is that there's often when you choose the right piece of film or the right photograph, there's often enough of a connection. There's something recognizable to the student, to the viewer, that they can make this connection with something. They can get excited about it because there's some level of familiarity. But because it's from decades ago, there's also 
an unfamiliar element to it. There's something that encourages the question or the reaction beyond, I know that place. And that's one thing that I think can be powerful about bringing film and, and photography into a classroom that has that geographic grounding with where the students are. I know I've mentioned before the benefits of being able to connect with a local historical society, museum, library, whatever it might be. I'm going to echo it one more time here. I'm, I won't go in depth, but I feel like there's such benefits there. I also think that when it comes to this idea of using photography or film, while there are some challenges in using film, it also becomes more engaging. And you all know the degree to which your students view film. Now, we're probably talking YouTube here when, when I say film, but the connection is strong in watching moving images. And some of that translates into watching historically-based moving images too when they are available. So if you have the choice, kind of venture in to doing that. I'm also going to put in the notes a blog post I wrote way back in 2015 when I was at the Library of Congress, but it's looking at some of the tips in exploring film and some things that you can do when bringing film to students. And by film, I could mean video or film or whatever the specific media is that it was recorded on, but, but moving images essentially. Along with that, there are a collection of films that I specifically write about in that blog post, and those are actuality films that the Library of Congress holds. Now, these are films that during the early 20th century were extremely popular. They were viewed across the country on, relatively to the time, big screens. And what they were were everyday life. Actuality films are, are essentially these films of, of everyday life, but typically in places not geographically bound to the people who are watching them. So people are getting an opportunity to see places that they've never seen before. And that was the appeal at the time of actuality films, seeing not only the moving picture, which was new at the time, but also seeing these places that they had never seen before and getting an opportunity to experience something, experience a place, experience an environment through film that they had not done before. So I think that another advantage to, to film specifically, but I think also to visuals in a sense, is this idea that we can also explore places we haven't been. I know a lot of librarians that have done this over not with historically based film, but with, with modern day uh, film and footage with during the pandemic where they have connected students to new geographic places through visual images, through moving images. And it is powerful. So this is another flip side of the coin advantage to bringing these pieces in in a historical context that that same connection can be made. The other piece around these actuality films is because they very intentionally show everyday life, bringing these in as a view of what everyday life was like if your students are looking at early 20th century history might be a place to bring 
these primary sources into students' learning. And again, through the blog post, you're welcome to take a look at this. I'm not going to go over it step by step, but there are some specific pieces that you can put into place where students can bring this in, analyze it in a way that makes the most sense given your technology access or their particular technology access, and then possibly even bring in other resources to start to fill in the gaps of what these short films show. So maybe bringing in historically based text or historically based still images to even show more of what life was like and possibly to start answering questions that students may ask when they're looking at this type of historically based film. So another connection that I was making when I was listening to this NPR piece with Prelinger and it just got me excited to bring these pieces back into the classroom that I use and excited to explore Prelinger's resources that he's archived and made accessible to all of us to see what is available there. I was specifically watching one of his lost landscapes and I believe this was one was in New York City and was just kind of bouncing around to see what I could find, all kinds of interesting things, but one of them that stood out to me was two different pieces of footage where people were shoveling snow into a wagon, and this one looked kind of, again, early half of the 20th century. And then very shortly after, in that same section of video, they had what looked to be snow being dumped into the waterways. So this reminded me of some still images that the Library of Congress has that shows at least this first part where snow removal at the time in a major city like New York would be people just out with shovels filling up wagon after wagon after wagon. And then another piece of history that I've heard is that at the time it got just essentially dumped into the nearby waterway. Uh, be it a river or a bay or whatever that, or, or lake, whatever that particular city was, was connected to. And that practice, at least my understanding of that practice being in a snowy area occasionally of St. Louis that uh, gets a fair amount of snow removal is that's no longer done. That that's now how snow is, is removed because there could be pollutants that are picked up from the roads that are then dumped into the waterways. So a little piece of history. I love the fact that Prelinger has these moving images that can be paired then with still images to show even more variety of, of where this happened, when it happened, again, to broaden out our understanding of a particular moment in a particular place. So many opportunities, so many places to go with that. I can't wait to dig into it, and I can't wait to revisit this particular episode for myself in the fall as I'm pushing my thinking forward, getting ready for students and teachers to return to the district. Friends, we're going to go ahead and wrap the episode right there. I can't thank you enough again for listening, for sharing, for subscribing, and I hope to see you in the fall when we return for season two of the podcast. Have a great summer, everyone. <music>